Well, good day and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt, it's great you're watching, and this has been prepared for the final Sunday in January 2024. As we begin, hear these words of scripture from Psalm 96. O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Honour and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Well, let's sing to the Lord a song of praise as we begin. Say 
Well, we come to the ministry of God's Word now, and our Bible reading today, our main Old Testament passage is 1 Samuel chapter 8, it's the whole thing, have a read of that one. Uh, Our psalm for today is Psalm 146, and our New Testament passage is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through to 21. Uh, They'll be on the screen, pause the video in a moment, have a read, and we'll come back together as we think about them. Let me pray for us as we think about God's word together. Heavenly Father, go before us and prepare our hearts. Work in us by your spirit that we might uh, be soft towards your word. That we might see you fully and see ourselves fully and live in a right way of response. Amen. Well, in an insecure world, we crave security. Before my family goes on holidays... I always make sure that our little security cameras are turned on so that I get a phone notification if any if there's any movement inside the house so I know if anyone's there and there'll be a recording of it. Now, last time we were on holidays, uh, I, I woke up in the middle of the night to a little bloop bloop on my phone and you can imagine my heart starting to pick up as I saw it's a notification from my camera app. Anyway, the time it took to unlock my phone, it felt like an eternity. And I opened it up, I had a look. What did I find? A cockroach walking along the bench top in front of the camera. I mean, I wanted security. I didn't quite want that much security, though. Uh, in an insecure world, we crave security. That's why we put locks on our doors. That's why many of us take out different forms of insurance. There's car insurance, house insurance, life insurance. And we want to know that our leaders as well have our security in mind. I wonder if you know what our government budgets to spend on security in this coming year. Cybersecurity? A hundred million dollars. That's a lot of money. But it's nothing compared to the budget they have for defence. Fifty billion dollars. Which is nothing nothing compared to what they're going to spend on welfare and social security. $200 billion. Whether it's security cameras, insurance policies, or simply depending on government funding, we know in our lives that we want security. And today, as we turn to 1 Samuel 8, uh, the last week in our little series at the start of 1 Samuel, here we find a story of God's people, Israel, chasing security. Now, there's nothing wrong with chasing security, But what we see for them, ultimately, is that it comes with a deep heart problem. And in the next little while, I want want to help us to see that this is an issue that's not so far removed from God's people today. And my hope is that this time we'll open our eyes to see a way that we tend to live as well. And that it'll help us surrender our lives more fully to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus. That's my aim. Now... If you've been with us here over the last uh, last week, you'll remember that uh, we covered a whole lot of ground, 1 Samuel chapter 4 through to chapter 7, uh, and we watched Israel and the nations around them learn that they could not take uh, God, a holy God, lightly. In chapter 7, it, finishes, it finished with a time of peace, 
chapter 7, verse 15. Hopefully you've got your Bible there. You can see it in front of you. It says, Samuel continued as Israel's leader, or their judge, all the days of his life. So, by the end of chapter 7, Samuel has grown up. He's not a boy anymore. And at this point, he's functioning for Israel, not just as a prophet and a priest, but also as their kind of national leader. But now here, as we get to chapter 8, we find that a lot of time has passed. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, Samuel is now old. And it's a significant detail because it means that God has been blessing his people, Israel, with a long time of peace and security from their enemies. But this first verse in verse 8, in chapter 8 rather, it also signals for us that there is a time of change coming. So chapter 8 verse 1, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. As we read this, this should give us vibes of chapters 2, 3 and 4. Remember Eli and his sons, they're there. Uh, Eli's sons were wicked scoundrels, and it leaves us wondering, reading this, how is Samuel and his sons going to go? How's it going to turn out? In verse 2, we're told the names of Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, and then they're being sent sent off to lead down in a lower part of Israel, down at Bathsheba. And it's not the usual thing, though, that a prophet or a judge passes on their leadership to their sons in Israel. But Samuel is trying out this new little experiment, if you will, just to see how things go. And yet sadly, verse 3, his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. It's an experiment of passing leadership on to to these sons that's ultimately failed. And Israel's leaders, they can see, the elders there, they can see that There's a threat now. There's a threat to Israel's security and their land. Uh, Under Samuel's leadership, uh, there was a long time of peace that they enjoyed. But now, uh, the leadership and therefore their security is being threatened. And it's being threatened by two things. By death and by sin. Uh, Even when there's a good leader in Israel, they will eventually die. And when a new leader, new leader comes along, there's no guarantee that they'll be good and, and won't act in wickedness, like Samuel's sons are doing here. And so death, sin, they pose a problem for Israel's leadership and their security as a nation. But, yet again, Israel's elders, they have a solution. Now, they proposed a solution last week, taking the ark into battle, didn't end so well. Let's see how they go this time. Verse 4 and 5. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old. That's a nice way to start a conversation, isn't it? You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. The elders of Israel are effectively saying to Samuel, Hey Samuel, your time's up. We want a new leader. Give us a king. And in one sense, it's a kind of reasonable request. Because they're seeking just a new form of government to try and combat the problem of corruption. But do you see the problem in in kind of what they're asking for? Just how illogical their solution actually is. The elders are saying, hey Samuel, this hereditary model of leadership isn't working. So give us now a permanent hereditary leadership through a king. Right? 
It doesn't make sense. Now, how, how are we meant to feel about this request? Well, we're not left wondering how Samuel and God feel about it. Now, they both take it as a personal rejection. Now, verse 6 tells us that Samuel was displeased by their request. And in verses 7 and 8, God says, Hey, Samuel, you and me both, buddy, right? Their rejection of you is really a rejection of me. Now, just to be clear, uh, there's nothing inherently wrong for Israel asking for a king at this point. Having a king, after all, it was part of God's plan for the people once they're in the land. Have a listen to this from uh, Deuteronomy 17, what God says to his people through Moses. He says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you've taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Well, if you would keep reading there in Deuteronomy, we see the kind of king that God spells out, the kind of king that he wants. And to put it really simply, it's a king who rules under God. A kind of king who is, who is nothing like the nations around them. And so asking for a king isn't wrong at this point in Samuel's lifetime. But it's not until the end of, till at verse 20, at the end of this chapter, that we find out exactly why they're asking for a king is so wrong. Now, We'll jump over verses 10 to 18 for the moment. We'll come back there a bit later. Basically, Samuel is warning the people what this king, like the other nations have, what he'll do for them, do to them. But after warning them, verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the nations, the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. What we see here, what we see is two motives that expose their deep heart problem. They don't just want a king like the nations, they want to be like the nations. And this is, fu- this is fundamentally a rejection of God's covenant. Coming out of Egypt, God said to these people, I've redeemed you from slavery. I've brought, made you free. Right? You're free to enjoy my blessings. You are my chosen people, my treasured possession. In Leviticus 20, God says, You are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy and have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Now, to be holy in that way doesn't mean to be perfect. It doesn't mean to be sinless. But it means to be, it's the idea of being set apart, being a special possession, chosen. Like my mother-in-law's dinner set that's Royal Dalton fine bone china. It's not like the other dinner sets. It doesn't live with the other dinner sets. It doesn't go in the dishwasher like the other dinner sets. No, no. It only comes out on special occasions as well. For Israel, they don't just want to have a king like the nations. They want to be like the nations. They don't want to be Israel anymore. They don't want to be holy and set apart. It's a rejection of God. And the parallel that we need to draw is between God's old covenant people then and God's new covenant people now. The ancient Israel and the church. God calls people who are saved in Christ to be a holy people. God's people are not to be looking over their shoulders at the world around us and saying, hey, that looks good. Can we be like them? 
Now, Christians in the church today, we are always under pressure to conform to the ways and thinking of the world. But listen to what Peter says in his letter to the early churches. 1 Peter 1. He says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Or take it this way from Paul in Romans 12. He says, in view of God's mercy to you in Jesus, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. That is how God's people are called to live. Holy and set apart. But back here in 1 Samuel, uh, the Israelites, they don't want that anymore. But why wouldn't they, you ask? Why wouldn't they want that? Where does that kind of thinking come from? Well, it's in the second part of verse 19. It shows us. And it appears at at face value like it's a simple security issue. But there's more to it than that. Have a look. Verse 19, second half. They say, we want a king like the nations to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now they're worried that the nations around them are going to rise up against them. And without a king, they won't have the leadership to win the battles that they need. Have they totally forgotten what's just happened? Have they totally forgotten about what we've read in the last few chapters last week? Chapters 4 through 7, they show us that Israel already had a leader, someone like this, someone to lead them, someone to win their battles for them. And it was God. Last week we saw God winning battles without Israel. He could do it all on his own. God is the divine king and leader that they need. And so what's really going on here is a rejection of the provision of grace that God has already been showing them. It's a rejection of his grace. And it's not actually until chapter 12, a little bit later on in 1 Samuel, that the heart of this is fully spelled out. You see, a bit later in chapter 12, uh, Samuel reminds the people of the pattern of how things have been going since coming out of Egypt. The pattern of Israel. He reminds them that Israel sin. They get themselves into trouble. And then they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And then finally, God gives them a leader, a judge, someone who will help them out of their problem and bring a time of peace. And he says that problem goes, that cycle goes on again and again. It repeats itself. And it's the cycle of judges. We see it again and again and again. God is gracious. Israel sinned. They cry to God for help in their distress. And then God sends a leader to help them and bring peace. And we would expect that that pattern continues on and on. Except it doesn't at this point. This point in 1 Samuel 8. And Samuel reflects back on it in chapter 12 at this point. In chapter 12, verse 12, he says... But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Amorites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, like no more. We want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king, Samuel says. They're essentially saying, you know, Samuel, we're a bit tired of going to God in our time of need. We're a bit tired of needing to rely on his grace to give us the leader that we need. 
No, we want to set up an automated system that essentially cuts out God as the middleman, if you like. And so at the heart of this, the heart of asking for a king, it's a rejection of God, who is their true king and leader. Because they're saying, we don't want to keep living by faith, trusting in the unseen God for our security. No, instead, we want a king who we can see And we want a predictable succession of kingship that means that we don't need to keep coming back to God. Put simply, they don't want to live by faith anymore. They want to live by sight. And I think this is the rub for our lives. And so bear with me as I explain what what I think that looks like at times. For us, when it comes to the things we need, uh, most of us aren't worrying about uh, where it's going to come from. Most of us don't worry about where we're going to sleep because we have a roof over our heads. We're not worried about where our next meal is going to come from. We know we have at least a little money left in the account. And even when things aren't in our hands, most of us have someone who we can kind of turn to in a real time of need to rely upon, whether that's family or whether it's simply government funding. And I think many of us, not all, but many of us, are well enough set up in life so that we don't feel that daily or regular need or necessity to turn to God for these provisions. We're so well set up that we don't feel the need to turn to God. And I'm not saying that having security, having a job or finances or other support, I'm not saying they're bad things. On the contrary, these are good gifts from a good God. And yet I think so often what happens is that these systems of security we have in life often make it hard for us to feel the need to come before God on our knees. As I said, there's nothing wrong with having these kind of systems of security set up for us. But I think the issue is that when we genuinely have a time of need, that where we should be turning to God, we're so used to depending on ourselves or depending on others that we find it hard to actually do in practice. We're so used to walking by sight that it can blind us from turning to God in in faith and actually relying on him for the things that we need in life. And so I might ask you, when was the last time that you actually cried out to God in faith? How often do we do that? Now for some of us, uh, it might be because of we don't have much or because we've got lots going on. The answer might be, I'm crying out to God often. But I suspect for, for many of us that we don't do it all that often. And it might be the case that we have so many good things from God that we buy into the lie that we are self-made and self-sufficient people and that everything we have comes from our hands and our efforts. We buy into the way of thinking that we can overcome things ourselves, whether by our own smarts or we can literally buy our way out of it. We can think our way around obstacles that are in front of us. Or if we can't, we know who we're going to turn to. We know people in our lives who can help us with those things. And we do that, all that, before we give God a second thought. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying that I'm setting up God against these other means in our life. No, because God is the good giver of these things. He provides for us through these means. But there are two ways to approach them. We can live and work and make use of these means by faith knowing and trusting that God is the one who gives us all these things and we should give thanks to him regularly. Or we can live, work and make use of these means by sight, totally forgetting 
about the God, the God who's given them to us, or even simply rejecting him. Uh, one way, it embraces God, and the other way, forgets about him. And so we ask ourselves, are we people who genuinely walk with God by faith through every part of life? Or are we so used to trusting in ourselves and others that we'd rather walk by sight without him? Now, back to the story for the people of ancient Israel. It's only as we get into chapter 12 later on that this kind of heart desire to live by sight rather than faith, it's only in chapter 12 that that's actually exposed. And it's only then that the people see their wickedness and their rejection of God and they cry out in chapter 12 verse 19, Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Well, it's only there in chapter 12 that they finally realise the wickedness in their rejection of God, a rejection that should rightly bring them under God's judgment. They realise the wages of their sin should deserve them death, and they need to turn to God for his mercy. And the same is not untrue for us. In the big picture of things, the wages of our sin is death. And living as the king of our own lives, rejecting God should mean that should, should mean death for us. And, and it would mean that if it were not for Jesus. You see, unlike the way that we can often rely on ourselves for our daily provisions, there is no way that we can rely on ourselves when it comes to dealing with our sin problem. Our debt of sin before God cannot be fixed in living by sight, ourselves. No, instead, our salvation can only come in trusting in our Lord and Saviour who is unseen. Listen to these words from Peter's first letter to the early churches. 1 Peter 1 verse 8 and 9, he says, Though you have not seen the Lord Jesus Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christians, Peter says, Christians are people who live for and love what we cannot see. The only one who can save, our Lord Jesus. Now, as we start to wrap things up here, I want to finish by jumping back into 1 Samuel 8. Because for Israel, here, uh, living a thousand years before Jesus, they only came to realise the extent of their rejection of God later down the track. But in the moment, it's almost as if they were blind to it. Or perhaps more accurately, they would close their eyes to it. They didn't want to listen. Uh, We jumped over verses 10 to 18 earlier. There, Samuel passes on God's warning of what this king like the nations have would be like. He says to them, verse 11, He will take your sons and make them serve. Verse 13, he will take your daughters and make them serve. Verse 14, he will take your fields and your vineyards. 15, he will take your provisions. 16, he will take your servants and your livestock. 17, he will take your flocks. A king like the nations will be a taker. Take, take, take. He will basically plunder his only people such that, at the end of verse 17, he says, you yourselves will become his slaves. In other words, God is saying to them, you'll be no better than you were back in Egypt. And, verse 18, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. 
but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so God finishes by saying to Samuel, verse 19, if they want to reject me, give it to them. Give them the king they want. And if we were to keep reading in the next few chapters, we would see that under King Saul, uh, Israel, they're forced to suffer, suffer some of the consequences of their poor decision. Now, we might come back to 1 Samuel later on in the year, but for now, as we finish, I think this description of what the earthly king is going to be like should bring for us a sharp contrast with another king, King Jesus, the one who we live for by faith, not by sight. Jesus for us, he's a different kind of king. Jesus is not a king who takes, takes, takes. Jesus is a king who gives, gives, gives. A king who, Mark 10, who gives his life as a ransom for many. A king whose rule, it doesn't lead to slavery, but leads to perfect freedom. Now we started today looking at Israel's need for a leader to overcome the problem of sin and death. And in Jesus, that is what we have. As our king, he conquers sin and death for us. He is the one we can turn to for eternal security. He is the king who calls us to live and be his holy and chosen people. To be people who joyously live not by sight, but who live for him by faith. Let's turn to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, thank you that you entered this world for us as our king. A king who doesn't take, a king who gives, one who gave your life for us. Help us to appreciate that more and more, Lord Jesus. Help us be people who who pause and repent quickly when we seek to be people who, who live by sight rather than faith, trusting in ourselves rather than in what you have won for us and what you give us and daily provide for us. Jesus, be our Lord and King now, we pray. Help us to live for you. Amen. We continue in a time of praise.
Jesus said that if I fear I should come to him No one else can be my shield I should come to him For the Lord is good and faithful He will keep us day and night We can always run to Jesus Jesus strong and kind Let me finish again with those wonderful words from 1 Peter. Though you have not seen the Lord Jesus Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, go in peace knowing what our Lord and King Jesus Christ has won for us.